Hey, this is Jen Shireen, founder of Influence Not Power, coming to you with my second podcast episode. For today's episode, I am chatting with Leroy Wall, Vice President of Private Equity. Leroy is an incredible human whose insights, outlook, and personal experience inspire me and ignite my passion for change and further my drive to advance equality. So thank you so much, Leroy, for agreeing to chat with me today. And to start things off, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, I, uh, I have an interesting journey that got me here. I grew up in a very small town in rural Newfoundland. It was a town of about 300 people called St. Andrews. And I was uh, fifth generation of that town and first really to grow up and leave the big city. So I remember my childhood uh, earliest memories until a couple of years ago, and I'll come back to uh, meditation and how that changed my life. My earliest memories went back to about age 10, and they were all pretty happy. And if you looked at my life, you'd say, well, things all sort of fell in the line. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere about five years ago, I found myself always anxious, always stressed out, didn't know why I was anxious and stressed out because my life appeared to be very, very happy on the surface. I was happily married, had a great job, well-respected in my job, financially comfortable, you're in love, you think, well, why am I stressed? Why do I have anxiety in my life? And then um, I discovered a book called The Body Keeps the Score and I read the book. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was in the process of uh, embarking upon uh, a bit of soul searching and the need for soul searching, making a lot of money, but feeling very unfulfilled. And I didn't quite know what would come next. So at the beginning of 2018, um, I took pretty much the whole year off and had a sabbatical. And that's when everything started to change for me. So I'll pause there because I can I can go into the change uh, in any level of detail, uh, but I'll pause and see if you have any follow up questions for from that first answer. Yeah, certainly. And I maybe for our listeners to dig in a little bit more into events, big events of your life that help shape who you are today. And wondering if you might be willing to dig into that a little bit too. I'd be happy to. You know, these moments happen in your life that appear devastating. So the catalyst for me to get to the place that I am today, where I consider myself a fully formed human, um, who, just to cut to the chase, identifies as a female, but in my head, my gender identity, but my gender expression is male, except for the fact that, yes, there is polish on my fingers, and often there is. Um, The road to get there started with... uh, being fired from my last job while I was an exaggerated performer. I didn't know that happened. I didn't even know you could be an exaggerated performer and be fired. But I was fired because they didn't need me anymore. I'm a builder. Mm -hmm. And the best compliment they could have paid me was, we don't need you anymore. You're a builder. Mm -hmm. The person we need is a maintainer. They, in fact, created a new role for me as a builder, but I wasn't ready for that role. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't a role that fit my career. So I chose to put my career ahead of my company's decision Mm -hmm. and I opted to leave this company. Now, I would like to say that at first I was really happy, but I spent six weeks on the couch and thought, what have I done? They they created a job for me. I've left this job, but surely it's happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. The gift 
that I needed was time. I was I was still anxious. Mm -hmm. As I left you on the last question, I'm I'm a perfectly healthy person who chooses fingernails. Perfectly healthy person whose cuticles look torn apart all the time. Why? Why do I have this anxiety? I still don't know why. Mm -hmm. But then I get the job offer and it's nine months before I start. And I decide that my metaphor is I have nine months. You can make a baby in nine months. Mm -hmm. You can rebirth yourself in nine months. So I signed up to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and I went off and climbed this mountain. And just a uh, day before yesterday on the way back on an airplane, uh, the lady sitting next to me uh, was telling me about a book called The Second Mountain. And the whole metaphor of the book and the climbing of the mountain, it was on Kilimanjaro where my memories went back pre-age 10. I got back into my real deep childhood memories. It happened because it was minus 30. We were in a blizzard. It was six in the morning. We're at 19,000 feet. We got 500 feet left to go. My fingers are frozen. The oxygen in the air is virtually minimal. Uh, it's not supposed to be a blizzard. They get a storm once every few years so of this nature. So I'm tapping into everything in my mental power to be able to finish this. And all of a sudden, I can feel the presence of figures in my life who were important to me. I grew up in northern Canada, in Newfoundland. I knew how to handle myself in the snow. I knew how to handle myself at minus 30. I felt the presence of my grandfather with me and he's been dead for 20 years and I was a devout atheist walking into that climb and now I'm feeling my grandfather's presence. Since then, I have uncovered that there was really a whole decade of my life I had repressed. I had figured out at a very young age, as early as three, that I was a girl. My dad didn't know what to do with it. There wasn't a book written back then for it. So it was scared out of me, perhaps even beaten out of me. There was abuse. Uh, there's a lot of healing that's taken place since then, but suffice it to say the trauma that I experienced in the first 10 years of my life that mm -hmm. I've forgotten about mm -hmm. was the reason I would react to situations with fear. And now I react with courage because I realize my parents didn't know what to do in 1976 in a town of 300 people when their son came out with high heels on and lipstick and was thrilled. <laughs> they were like, oh my God, what do we do? So somehow by age 10, that's all programmed out of your mind. And then when I came out of the closet at 25, I thought that fixed everything. I came out of the closet and... I thought, wow, well, now I'm happy. Gay people have the right to be married. I'm married to a partner. He's wonderful. I'm still not happy. Now, I sit in front of you, confidently gender identity female, gender expression male, and I'm me. I'm me. Wow. I'm not changing for anyone, and I can't remember the last time I put a finger in my mouth and bit a cuticle or a nail because anxiety's gone. And uh, what I tell people is the courage starts inside of you. The courage starts with you. If you're fearful, we work for a company that is fantastic, that has a code of conduct, that has values and principles, that are good people. And if you're sitting there afraid, 
you probably have good reason to be afraid, but it's probably not your workplace that's making you afraid. It's past experiences that are making you afraid. And that's actually a really good point that you brought up before with regards to your safest place is at work. The safest place to be yourself is at work. So I was hoping, could you expand on that a little bit more too? The safest place is work. You know, when I first came out, I was in the closet all through university. I had a fantastic girlfriend in university for four years and we were going to get married and we were going to have kids and everything was going to be perfect because that's exactly what I was told was going to happen because I was raised that way. Mm -hmm. But I knew that wasn't who I was. And at 25, I was working for Deloitte at the time. I was working in the tax pool. It was April 30th. That's tax deadline for anyone who understands uh, tax law. So I was working late. And in 1997, 20, 22 years ago, uh, on April 30th, I left the tax pool and I went to a party with my friends who were watching Ellen DeGeneres have her coming out show. And Ellen played the role of a therapist, the psychiatrist. And Ellen told, Oprah told Ellen, it's okay. It's okay to be gay. And when she did that, she got a lot of flack. She got 5,000 letters written to her. 4,000 of them were mean and hateful. But one of those letters came from a young person at work who was afraid to come out, mm -hmm. who was afraid to be themselves, who thought they would get fired if they came out. That person was me. And I watched that show. And I thought, if Ellen could do this, and she got fired for that. She lost her show on ABC for that. She got canceled. She didn't become the superstar she is today. She killed her career when she came out. And then she rebounded from that. But if she could do that, surely I could tell my parents. So I told my parents I was gay. I haven't figured any gender things out. I think I'm gay and now everybody's happy and the world is all a better place. Um, and I end up writing a thank you card to Ellen. Thank you, Ellen. I'm so glad you did the show. Because of your show, I told my parents. And because I told my parents, my parents loved me. And I didn't think they would. This was an entire manufactured fear in my head. But just to reinforce that sometimes fear is real, uh, I wrote the thank you letter. I didn't have Ellen's address, but I had Oprah's address. It comes on at the end of every show. Twitter's not invented yet. Google's not invented yet. But Canada Post is. So <laughs> we mail the card. I mail the card to Ellen mm -hmm. via Oprah. I forget about it. Six months go by, and then all of a sudden I'm at work. Uh, it's December now. It's year end. It's busy time again in the audit <laughs> world, in the middle of audit season, and all of a sudden the phone rings with my big brick Motorola phone in 1997. <laughs> I open it up, and I know it's costing me like $2 a minute, so I need to keep the call short. And it's the Oprah Winfrey show calling. You should just come on and come out on the show. Uh single best thing I ever did because I was teetering around my rights as a human being at work, teetering around them as if I had reason for shame. And when I walked into the managing partner's office and asked him for the, the day off to fly to Chicago to sit on Oprah's stage, he said, I wouldn't do that if I was you. Um, and reinforced my fear 
And I went back to my cubicle and for a minute and a half, I sort of had accepted his outcome. And then I stood up and said, no, no, that's actually not the outcome that's going to write my story. I have a chance to come out and be me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. So I went back in his office and I said, well, I'm going on Oprah and it is very important that I do it. And I think there's an opportunity here for Deloitte to do the right thing. And let's just say they did. And they did in a big way. And if I hadn't taken the stand, they wouldn't have done it or they wouldn't have done it so soon. So it reinforces courage. So I did appear on the Oprah Winfrey show in 1997. And immediately after that, from that point onward, I have never not been proud of who I was. I'm always proud of who I am at work. And the minute you take that frame of reference, everything will change. Yes. And then what would be your advice to find, for someone who find themselves in a situation where they think that they've been treated unfairly or in, uh, without equality, and for them to get that, that courage to stand up and say, no, this isn't okay. What advice do you have to them to get their feet moving to their manager's partner, managing partner's office or whatever that situation is for them. How do they get there and what do they do? It's very, very important to communicate. So language came much later in our, in our species. Um, there's a second book that if you get a chance to read called Sapiens. And for 2 million years as a species, we communicated without language. We communicated mostly on emotion and trust, right? But language changes all of that because I can say words in 30 seconds that can undo a year's worth of trust. So, but I can also say words that can build trust. So use language appropriately. So I find when you find yourself in a situation where you think something has been your perception of the situation is that something bad is happening. Mm -hmm. But when you start talking about it, you find out that the other person doesn't even have the same perception as you. So you're sitting there thinking, I'm thinking the managing partner is a bigot. The managing partner is thinking, you poor guy, I don't want you to go on TV and ruin your career. It's a really cruel world. That's what he's thinking. I wouldn't do that if I were you, isn't a bigoted response. It was the grandfather in him worried about me and the outcome. And by having the conversation and understanding what he was worried about, I wasn't worried what people thought of me. I was worried about losing my job. He doesn't need to worry what people think of me. And if he's not going to fire me, now we don't have a problem. Conversation solved that. If you don't have the courage to have the conversation with directly with the individual, that makes you normal. <laughs> yes. Find the courage to talk to a friend. Not a friend who tells you what you want to hear, a friend who tells you what you need to hear, a friend who's honest with you. Mm -hmm. We all, back to those sensitivities, if in those early years somebody was able to create fear in you or trauma in you or you didn't, the little girl in me didn't feel validated, in my 30s, someone could get me angry in the boardroom and see a side of me that was really that angry girl. 
Now you don't get that side of me because the trauma is dealt with. So what I tell people in the workplace is step back and understand you have a perception rooted in every experience you ever had and someone else has a perception rooted in a different thing. And the only way to get on the same page is to talk. Talk with via uh, an independent third party. So on the DNI Council, one of the things that I've been lobbying for is the creation of a safe culture where there are culture champions. They don't have to have psychology degrees or sociology degrees. They just have to listen and say to you, you know, Jennifer, I hear you. And have you thought about things this way? So. I find it useful. The best example I can come up with for perception, I've been asking the world to teach me to understand that there's more than one perception of situations and be careful what you ask for. So I'm coming home from work. I walk to work every day. I was coming home from work about a month ago and there was two men in a yellow lab front of my house and you know when a yellow lab starts to circle because you know it's about to do something <laughs> yeah. well the yellow lab starts circling yeah and he starts circling and I'm like I'm like two blocks away and I'm like that dog's gonna lift his leg right on the side of my house I, I can see it I know what's gonna happen the angry little girl would fly off the handle but I'm not gonna do that I'm gonna walk up and be very respectful but it's still inappropriate what they're doing. And my perception is it's inappropriate for a dog to pee on a house. So I walk up as respectful as you can possibly be, but as direct and honest. And as I turn to make eye contact with the gentleman, it is abundantly clear that he is blind and it is a service dog and that only a monster would get mad at them. But I was justified in my actions right up until the moment I stood in front of him. Things aren't always what they seem. Yes. Have the courage to have the conversation and acknowledge that you might be wrong. And wouldn't it be better to find out you're wrong than to just sit there convinced you're right? And so now, if I ever walked up to anyone with a dog doing anything anywhere, <laughs> there's a pretty good chance that until I have surveilled that entire situation, I'm never going to walk up to someone and say, did you just let your dog pee on my house? Yes, get all the information. Right? Get the yes. information. Now, will you still have a boss who doesn't get it every once in a while? Yes. But I believe that if you work for a company that has good talent review and has good values and principles, and we ask every individual to play their part to be accountable, you can actually get the outcome you want. And when you have that one, one in a blue moon person who isn't living our values we'll have to figure out how to navigate through that but I'm finding those experiences less less frequently and usually fixed very easily by just having the conversation amazing yeah and so on a similar vein but with a slightly different um, twist to it I suppose what would be your best advice you can provide to developing professionals who now want to be a part of the fight to advance equality. So not just for themselves, but for others as well who want to be that champion you were talking about. What can someone do, particularly those that don't have any power right now as a manager or above, someone that's um, from trying to do it from the bottom up? Um, lead by example first. If you're going to have a 
productive 30-year career in this industry, you're going to have five or six different managers. And you're going to learn what not to do from bad managers just as much as you're going to learn what to do from good managers. So there will be periods of time where you might find yourself in a situation that's less optimal. Use it as a learning experience. Mm -hmm. the, the example I would use for that is it was a lifelong goal of mine to work on Wall Street. My maternal grandmother's French. Um, she spoke Acadian French, and which I don't think really is French. And uh, she had a, an accent. But my name, Leroy, is French. Lois, the king. The doctor who delivered me was Dr. King. And so Leroy being king and last name Wall, when I graduated from university, she said, you'll be the king of Wall Street one day. She had no idea what that meant. And I really wasn't the king of Wall Street. I was the queen of Wall Street. And it was the single worst time to move to Wall Street. I moved to Wall Street in January of 2008. And every part of that experience from a corporate culture and an economic standpoint was horrible. Yet, I look back at that a decade in the rearview mirror, and I'm better at my job because I was in that situation. I learned more in that situation. I can guarantee you I wasn't feeling it when I would go home and have anxiety at night in bed and wake up at four in the morning with a song racing in my head and going to my doctor and saying, I can't sleep, anxiety is racing through my head. Well, of course it is. I'm working for a public company. It's share prices in the toilet. We're laying off staff left, right, and center, even though our business line is not impacted by the recession, but the public company is. So we're laying off people, but we're growing our business. So these are environmental stresses. So you have to step back when you're managing your life and say, how much environmental stress are you going to allow into your life? Mm -hmm. And what is the trade-off? I had purchased a home in Toronto that was beyond my limits. And I needed to move to New York because I didn't want to give up the home. And I sold that home yesterday. And I'm glad I held on to it. Mm -hmm. So I made a decision to put money more important than mental health for a period of time. It was a short-lived period of time, but I made that decision. And when I left there, I made that decision to leave there. Mm -hmm. And I found myself in a different corporate culture after that, which is very similar to the culture I'm in now. And I will only ever work somewhere in the future that has the right culture. So my advice to people is know what you're willing to accept. It's a little harder in a place like Victoria. I wouldn't encourage someone to go around quitting their job. I would encourage you to try to manage your career with inside the organization. And if you're not a fit with your current manager, there's 500 people here. Let's find someone you are a fit with. Uh, and when you look back, when I look back on what is now almost a 25-year career, those who, those who valued loyalty and stayed with one company throughout, and those like me who moved around, we almost ended up in the same place. So there's no right or wrong answer. The difference between those who thrived mm -hmm. and those who survived were those who managed their own career because they were honest about their feelings, they were honest about who they are, they were honest about what they liked and didn't like, mm -hmm. and they accepted that no job's perfect, there will be some components you don't like, but on balance, you're in control of what you choose to do every day.
right? Like you don't like your job, you can quit. You can find another job, you can retrain. But most of us are in jobs we like. And most of the time, the nuances you're talking about comes right down to you have a fear. It might be real. It might be a perception. And the person you're fearful of may or may not even know that you have that fear. And as long as there's that many unknowns, mm -hmm. you can't fix it. Yes. So, I don't know. Maybe I, I simplify courage because I wouldn't have survived, I guess, my childhood if I didn't have courage. But I think I'm not unique. One in four Canadians has experienced what I experienced in terms of abuse. One in 10 Canadians is LGBTQ. One in a hundred now apparently identifies as gender non-binary. So I don't sit here unique. No. Every single person who comes to work has something about them that caused them to be insecure. Maybe they weren't picked for the soccer team. And now, oh my God, they didn't get picked for the project. And all they can think about, in, although they don't realize they're connecting it back. But now the little kid in grade three that didn't get picked for soccer is emotional about not getting picked for the project team. And it's not the same thing, but we don't even know we're connecting that yes. because the body carries those childhood sensibilities into the workplace and our executive brains weren't built to even know the difference yes. between hurt, hurt and disappointment is hurt and disappointment. And sometimes when you talk to people, it's as simple as that. They're like, oh my God, I'm hypersensitive. They know their triggers. They're hypersensitive about punctuality or they're hypersensitive about... So, so self-awareness also plays in. If you're under the age of 30 and you're still trying to navigate through, you're right where everybody else is. And like, I'm, I'm pushing 50 now, so it's a little easier when you got an extra couple of decades to yeah. process your thoughts, right? Well, and from what, it's, what I'm hearing too is that what we can do to advance equality is connect with one, one another to share those stories because one of the messages I, I want to put out there is our influence grows when we connect with one another. Letting someone else know that they're not alone, being open with what you're going through helps someone understand that, hey, wait, I'm going through something similar. I know how to fight this. I have someone to talk to. I know that I can find courage because someone's done it before me and laying out that path and that success for someone else is a great way that you can advance others while still taking care of yourself. Courage is key, right? I, I recently heard someone who isn't LGBTQ2 plus and has no reason to understand the community other than having a, a relative who's very young. And so but full of fear about it. And I'm like, okay, you do not earn the right to be fearful on my behalf or anyone else's behalf and feed fear. Mm, don't feed fear. Don't feed fear. If you're not even in the community and you're sitting there feeding fear, yesterday morning I had a conversation with a transgendered person in Beacon Hill Park for an hour. This is a person who would appear to almost anyone at, you would know that they had gone through a transition because when humans do it later in life it's pretty easy to tell but this person's happy and healthy and very very well adjusted and i have had the pleasure of having several conversations and the workplace is the safest place to be a transgendered person the medical program we have will 
augment and pay for a lot of the procedures and surgeries. We uh, we have a code of conduct that says we, we respect people, we respect people's privacy, we respect people's rights. So we have in the lobby of the building uh, some individual bathrooms that are safe and private places for people to go. So instead of feeding fear, I believe we have an obligation to feed confidence. I would tell any LGBTQ plus person, and I now know what every letter stands for. When I said it in the town hall, it was a tongue twister. Uh, I didn't know what letter I was two years ago. I've chosen a few of them over the years, but now I've landed on Q, which I'm told some people say is questioning. I call it queer. I call myself queer. I don't know how you can be female on the inside and male on the outside and call that normal. But it, but it's because I'm, I didn't, I had a decade of my life where I didn't have a chance to be normal. There wasn't a blueprint written for it yet. So I'll happily call myself queer, take back the title and own it. And if anyone is ashamed of being queer, they should come talk to me because they should be proud of it. They should have the courage. And if they watch the Victoria Pride Parade, which went past my house, children as young as elementary school were on floats with their parents and their teachers. The world is changing. Let's not feed fear. Let's feed hope. Let's feed courage. And let's get people realizing that prove me wrong by showing courage. And but I'm pretty sure you'll prove me right. Wow. Amazing. That seems like a perfect place to end. And so thank you so much for your candor and your honesty and your transparency. I truly uh, appreciate you sitting down with me and I think the listeners will gain so much from this. And so to those listening, please tune into my next podcast episode because there's more brilliance where that came from.